The Energy Transition Podcast takes you directly to the cutting edge of the global energy sector's shift, with a specific focus on the critical role played by oil and gas, as well as the pathways developing around a lower carbon future. Your hosts, Leslie Beyer, Energy Workforce and Technology Council CEO, and Dan Pickering, founder of Pickering Energy Partners, are joined by Josh Lowry, president of Upright Digital. Each episode engages industry thought leaders in an exploration of market-moving trends and topics, including new technologies, ESG, capital markets, inclusion and diversity, workforce innovation, regulatory influences, and the voice of the people. Join us as the Energy Transition Podcast looks at the state of the traditional energy and oil field service sectors, emerging technologies, and the path ahead in a world of lower carbon energy development. Welcome, everybody, to the Pickering Energy Team Fest 2023. My name is Josh Lowry. Uh, this is a live studio audience of the Energy and Transition podcast. I am joined, as usual, with the co-host extraordinaire, Mr. Dan Pickering. Hello, Dan. Josh, Hi. I'll tell you what, Dan, as you know, that is the most intimidating part of the entire process is the intro, and I just realized how hard it is to do in front of a live audience. You nailed it. Oof, you, I'll tell you. You nailed it. Um, we are, as I mentioned, coming from uh, live from Austin, Texas, at, your, at the Pickering Energy Partners uh, Team Fest. This is quite an event. It has been a, it's been a really great day. We had uh, three or 400 people. We've talked about everything from... Uh, the gas markets to the private equity markets to the offshore drilling markets, minerals and mining. Yeah. It's really been, it's really been fun kind of talking about all the pieces of energy. You know, I enjoyed the, uh, the mining parts of the conversation. I wouldn't expect it to hear all that. My, my favorite part was you had a uh, topic called don't call it a comeback for the offshore. I feel like it's absolutely a comeback. It's been, it's been gone for quite some time. Hasn't it? Am I, am I just, because maybe I sell offshore equipment and I've been off for seven years. Yeah. I, I think, um, I think the title was catchy. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Catchy. ChatGPT really helped us out on that one. Exactly. So. Exactly. Well, we're, we're lucky to be here. And so we're recording this live. It's nighttime in Austin. Yes, it We've is. Got, we're at a cool venue and we're super lucky to have uh, sort of a legend in, in the oil and gas business with us tonight. Um, Bud Brigham. Bud's a, an energy entrepreneur. He's been around the oil patch for 40 years. Um, I, I, I incorrectly tagged him as a geologist, which is, is terrible when he's a geophysicist. So, but he's a technical oil and gas guy and has had a lot of success building companies. And so we're really lucky to have him here. So, Bud, thank you thank for you. joining us. This is it's a, pleasure. It's a real treat. And uh, so we have, I mean, we we could be here for three hours, but we're going to take an hour. Uh, but, but maybe the way to start, Josh, if it's all right with you, yep. is I think, you know, Bud, you're, you're 40 years in this business. So give us a little bit of your background, and, um, and then we're going to kind of talk about what the changes we've seen in, in, the, in the oil patch in the 40 years you've been involved. Well, um, I grew up in Midland in the oil patch, and um, I think that's an advantage. Um, um, and then I went to the University of Texas, as I think you mentioned, my degree was geophysics. Um, and um, 
I um, um, initially worked in uh, seismic, yeah, I came out in 1983, you know, those of us who have been around a long time remember the 80s was a very difficult period in the Very business. hard. And um, very difficult to find a job. I finally got on with Western Geophysical and Seismic Data Processing, very big company. Um, I learned a lot about big companies versus small. And I finally got on, I wanted to get into EMP, and I got on with one of the hunt companies, Caroline Hunt's company, Rosewood Resources mm -hmm. in Dallas, which was a great place to be um, in, in, in the 80s. But, you know, and it was a funny time, but it was a great place for me to grow up. And so um, if you want, I can go on with the companies that I founded and walk, walk you through some of that if you'd like. 1983, that was a <laughs> great time to come in. Yeah, it was brutal. Uh, I, you know, there, there was a saying in 81, 82, stay alive to 85. Right. That, that, that uh, difficult down cycle just seemed to go on and right. on and on. 86 is really. Yeah. I, yeah. Was, I, I was in Midland in 1986, first, first office summer job, and it was tough. Yeah. Right. It was tough. Okay. I'm a 19-year-old I'm a junior in, engineer intern. And all the service hands were calling me because I had one well to, to do some work on. So I was like, wow, this is yeah. kind of mind-blowing. But um, so you Rosewood Resources, and then you started kind of being an entrepreneur. Yeah, and one thing about that, Dan, that I should probably point out, while the industry was so slow and there was nothing going on, technology was moving really rapidly. I mean, you had the PCs, you had Michael Dell who came out of UT and... PCs, I, I could see technology was really moving and it was, it was kind of frustrating that here we were, we weren't applying this evolving technology. And so that's really, um, you know, um, what helped me develop my, um, the essence of uh, what I believe would be a successful business model was to leverage technology that our industry was not doing enough of that. Um, that, and I saw, you know, the small company versus the big, I saw that the smaller companies had a real advantage in empowering people to innovate. Uh -huh. It's really difficult in a big company to innovate. Um, and, and so those became integral to my business models when I started my first company in 1990. Okay. And, and that was what? What'd you call it? And that what was, did it do? That was Brigham Exploration Company. And so when I was working on my business plan, um, and I was fortunate, my wife was a geologist, oil and gas attorney, so she started working and basically supporting us, and we had $30,000 in the bank. And, but the business plan was, what I saw as the disruptive technology at that time was 3D seismic. Mm -hmm. and, and so one of the interesting things when you look back on how our industry has changed is in the 80s, you know, most of our wells we drilled were dry holes. I mean, 9 out of 10 or at least 8 out of 10 were dry holes. So it was very chaotic. You'd move equipment 20 miles, drill a well. And, and typically move it another 15 miles to another location. And your, your risk on whether you were going to be successful and deliver economic returns was really pre-drill. It was geology and geophysics. And so I was fortunate being at Rosewood, I was able to get more responsibility. And this were you know, my views on empowering people, trusting people mm. to innovate came from. And, and we shot some of the first 3D seismic uh, shoots on shore. And I can see, I believe this was a game changer. And so my business model in 1990 was 
we were pioneering shooting 3D for exploration. So when we started in 90, I partnered with some good friends. I was a geophysicist, of course, a geologist and a landman. Uh, John Rui, independent here in town, and Rick Glasscock, really good entrepreneurs in their own right. And we put together projects and companies. We, we convinced companies to come in and fund the 3D. And then, and then we had to pay our way on drilling. And it was about a $250,000 draw hole, you know, 300-something completed. And so I was like puckered up because I had $30,000 and, and, uh, and the first well hit. And it was $18,000 out of my pocket. Then we hit on our first 11 wells. Wow. Outstanding. We, yeah, we were bootstrapping with a bank line. And, and uh, we hit on 13 out of the first 14. And that's when um, Alex Cranberg was with General Atlantic Partners and came along. And, and they brought the first equity capital, $10 million, uh, to put the wheels under us in, in May of 92. Wow. And Alex came on the board. And he and uh, Harold Carter really um, helped us build the company. Harold Carter was my mentor. He had run Sabine. And, um, and so, um, you know, uh, 3D Seismic was, was the disruptive um, uh, technology at the time. Other companies came out. You probably remember Carrizo, Edge, and others that went public as well. Um, and uh, so, anyway, that was the first company. When was when was the IPO of Brigham? Expo? May of, of ninety seven. May of nineteen ninety seven. So, mm-hmm. essentially five years. Five years, yeah. And uh, you hit on your first eleven wells. The, the irony here, I yeah, I, I remember that Joe Foster at Newfield was zero for eleven. So I think eleven for eleven is a better way to and start. Our wells were a little cheaper. Than yes, that too, yeah, yeah, yours yours were. Uh, two, 250 grand, 300 grand. That's, that's amazing. So you, you formed a public company, took it public in, in May of 97. What happens next? So then, um, those of us old enough to remember, um, 1998, 99, we <laughs> were all $11 a barrel. In fact, yep. we, were, we had some debt on the balance sheet. We were growing rapidly in our drilling results. We were having a 70% uh, success rate. Um, and then, uh, but we had debt on the balance sheet, and when oil went to eleven dollars a barrel, we were in trouble. Yeah, and it was very, very difficult. And one thing I learned about these cycles is, in these cycles and in crises such as crises as we went through of, of late, you learn a lot about people. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and you grow, or you or you yeah, or, or you're done, or you bail. And uh, and so we had some great people, and we came through that. We survived. And then um, and, and bootstrapped out of that, and um, and uh, and then of course the next disruption of course was horizontal drilling and fracking, and we had a great team and Lance Langford had come out of Burlington and Jeff Larson and they had done horizontal drilling and fracking and and we we believed early on that it would work in the oil plays and you may remember a lot of people were skeptical. Yep. That it was a gas play from yeah gas play oh four to oh eight or something molecules too large. Uh-huh. Um, but we, along with Harold Ham, was already up in the Bakken. We started looking at the Bakken, and, and we moved uh, aggressively on the Bakken. And, of course, that's where we put together 400,000 acres. Um, I never would have dreamed, and, and, and this was probably a once-in-a-lifetime disruption, what George Mitchell did with, with, with horizontal drilling and fracking. But we completed 100 consecutive wells that averaged 2,800 barrels a day. If you had told me somebody was going to be able to do that, I would say, you are crazy. That would never happen. You know, now I see why you said we could go for three hours. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) right. These are some great potential deep, deep stories to go into. 
Well, it was like fun. we just blew through ninety-eight, like it was no big deal. Yeah. Eleven dollars a barrel. I would love to just hear what that time frame was oh. like. I know we're going to keep going, but yeah. like there's some great stories. Well, I'll in tell this. you one story on that. Um, so we we did um, we 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 tr- had tr- needed to scrounge up some money to drill a few wells to get from you know our head above water, and we scrounged up some money and we drilled a couple of discoveries. And one was down in the Vicksburg in South Texas. And it was called the home run field. That's what we named it because it was a home run to us. <laughs> yeah. And it, it was an area where we were actually fracturing uh, Vicksburg vertically where Exxon and others had busted their pick and been unsuccessful. And we did it. Um, and so some bankers came in and said, said, that's not the home run field. That's the save your ass field. <laughs> that's <laughs> great. It really was. Yes. That's great. It's a, it's a, it would have been a really bold name if you named it before you drilled the well. Yeah. So, so talk to us about, you're in the Bakken. Let's pull that just up. Just, there you go, perfect. You're in the Bakken. You think, you think it's going to work before others do. How do you get that confidence? Where's, what told you that? Because 400,000 acres is a huge position, and, um, and I think your entry cost was quite low. And so what made you think it would work? Well, Dan, it really, it comes down to the uh, couple of key ingredients, I think, that have driven our success, not just with that company, but all the seven companies we've had. It's one, hiring great people, and we had terrific people. It's um, aligning them with the investors, the shareholders, and equity is certainly uh, generally the best way to do that. And then, as I said earlier, empowering them to innovate. So we had all those ingredients, so we had picked the right rock, and... and and we had the best engineers to do it. And, um, and, and, and that's what it came down to. As we innovated, really, it wasn't one moment in time that we mm-hmm. knew it was going to work. It was a continuum where we were, EOG deserves a lot of credit. They, they brought the swell packers up to the Bakken, and that enabled isolating the stages early on. They had the partial field discovery. We took that into the tighter rock, and we did more stages, and we did longer laterals. And, and our wells got better and better, our economics got better and better. So we were kind of building the confidence. So we were adding more acreage and kind of doubling down on what we were learning as we went along. So that's how we ended up with 400,000 acres and drilled over 100 consecutive wells that averaged 2,800 barrels. Wow. Yeah. When, when was your first well in the Bakken? 2005. Okay. And so, and when did, when did you sell the business? 2011. Okay. I mean, so, talk about perfect timing talk, there. Yeah, yeah, talk us through Wow, what was the catalyst to sell the business? Just somebody valued it more than you did, or did you see some something that said it's time to go? Or Well, the way we looked at it, we had built the factory. Mm-hmm. You know? So at, at that point, and, and Statoil was looking for to learn about Shell and for mm-hmm. onshore U.S. operations and production to diversify uh, what they were doing, which made a lot of sense. And so... It, we had built a factory such that a big company like that could come in. You know, big companies, you know, with that scale, there's some things they can do really well, and there's some things they don't do as well. With that scale, they can produce a lot of widgets, and they, you know, and, and so, so it made a lot of sense for them at the time. Mm-hmm. And for us, it, you know, we could continue to grow it and be a big company, or we could be entrepreneurs, and we chose to be entrepreneurs. Yeah, talk about that a little bit because. Um, no need to be modest. What you sold that business for? What was the ticket? Four point six billion. Four point six billion dollars. So you sell your company for four point six billion dollars, 
and you didn't go to the beach. So I did for a week or two. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I like the beach. Yeah. Bring us. Yeah. So what's next? What came next? And so, why? You know, again, we had really good people, and, and they, most of them were freed up. Now, to Lance Langford and Jeff Larson and a couple other guys' credit, we sold them out. They stayed on at Statoil and ran their onshore operations for several years and did a great job, took production up from 20,000 to 50,000 barrels a day. Uh, but, but we were ready to go again. So Gene Shepard and Rob Rusa and some other guys, we formed Brigham Resources, another EMP company. And, um, and also Brigham Minerals. We had the idea also for a disruptive mineral model. We had bought, one thing that Brigham Exploration did, we were so entrepreneurial, we weren't just drilling and completing wells. We bought and sold minerals. We did oil, gas, and water gathering and distribution. We did surface infrastructure. We even did um, some oil field service. Um, and so we developed a lot of experience and expertise. So we could see in the mineral space in that case, that the competitors in that space were not very sophisticated. And we saw we were the smartest guys in the room and we're only pursuing three quarters of the pie. We should be using our expertise, our knowledge, and, and take a more sophisticated approach to minerals. And so we did that with Brigham Minerals. Um, Rob Russo became CEO and uh, did a great job. And as you know, we went public in 2019 and recently merged it with Cityo. So. That worked really well. In both those companies, Brigham Minerals and Brigham Resources, we went to private equity. We had Warburg, Pincus, Pinebrook, and Yorktown, and uh, they were good partners for us. So they helped us capitalize uh, minerals. And then we, we also, um, with Brigham Resources, EMP company went down to the Delaware, put together acreage down there. Again, Gene Shepard was CEO. Uh, Eric Hoover was VP Ops, or EVP Ops, and we drilled in, uh, about 60 really good wells. We filed an S1 to go public, confidential, or we were filing when Diamondback came along and bought us for two and a half billion. So, these are good numbers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Although I, I do think if I'm going to pick a bone, um, your your naming conventions of your company not not hugely original. But they, once they you get better. once you get a brand name, you go with it. Exactly. Hey, we got it. We, we got Atlas now. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and so. You've now, you've formed, we've heard three companies and several sales, and you're back at it with, with Atlas, and um, Atlas has got some interesting technology that you should probably, tell us what the company okay. does, and then I'll, let's talk I about I will it. just mention, we did also in 17, after we sold Brigham Resources, we started Brigham Exploration, another one. It's a non-op company operating privately in the Permian. Some, some other guys, Keith Lilly, who was also with us at, at the original Brigham Exploration as CEO, and they're killing it. They're doing a great job. So we also have a private non-op mm -hmm. company. Um, so Atlas, it's kind of a funny story. Um, we, real, real quick, if you don't uh -huh. mind, before you go to that Atlas part, I'm just adding up the numbers here, right? You, you go from 1990, when you start your first business, to 2017. I mean, how fast does that time frame feel? like to you just from an entrepreneur standpoint i mean does it feel like it just flew by well 98 and 99 were really slow yeah. <laughs> okay. just painful i mean or? i aged so much i got gray hair and, and yeah it was just so painful when oil went up to 11 dollars a barrel but but no from 04 to 11 was super fast yeah i mean we were we, like we were racing on a treadmill 
I mean, yeah. the technology development there from the horizontal yeah. to the fracking, I mean, that, was, that had yeah. to be electric. It was. It yeah. was very exciting. And North Dakota is a special place. Spent a lot of time up there, and, and um, it, was, it was fun times. Hmm. Yeah. So the story on Atlas. So, um, which, is, which is a publicly traded company now. Today it is, yeah. A- AESI, correct? AESI. Okay. Thank For you. our listeners to look it up. It's about $2.3 billion company today. Um, so John Turner also worked with us at Brigham Exploration Company. And um, he and um, Hunter Wallace in our office. Hunter had worked with us at Brigham Resources. We're in the office and we're looking at deals. And um, friends in Midland called up and, and they said, hey, bud, we've got a sand deal. Do you want to look at it? And uh, it was some guys I grew up with in Midland. And, um, and so we took a look at it. And, and not long after they called us, High Crush moved on two sections on the Kermit Giant Open Dune. They paid $275 million for the two sections, cash in stock, um, on the Giant Open Dune that, that our friends were leasing up. So they said, Bud, we're getting offers. Will you, do you guys want to make an offer? And we looked at it, and we, we, we created a business plan around it. And we said, Steve, Hal, instead of uh, taking a check, instead of taking a royalty, you ought to take equity. And we showed them you can create more value for yourselves with that. And they said, we're in. So that was, we tied up the, the majority of the giant open dune then at Kermit. Then we went down to Monahans, and the Seeley Smith Foundation controlled the, all of the Monahans dune. And we went to them. They were getting the same kind of offers. We made the same proposal to them, and they said, we're in. So that's how Atlas came together. I mean, just two giant open dunes. I call it the Gawar of Sand Reserves mm. in the Permian. And ideally located to, to right, service yeah. the Midland and Delaware basins. And so uh, in a, kind of one of the themes we were talking with you about is technology and how it's changed. And the sand business doesn't sound like technology, but you're bringing something to it. So mm-hmm. tell us about that. No, you're right. Um, you know, a lot of our, uh, most of our competitors had come down from Illinois and Wisconsin where Northern White was being mined. And generally, they were just taking their same plant design and plopping it down in West Texas. Um, to our team's credit, including Hunter Wallace and Stephen and, and, uh, and uh, Chad and uh, our guys, we took a different approach. We took a proven technology, proven processes, and we went state of the art. We built in redundancy. Um, we did a lot of things like instead of um, buckets, we used um, uh, conveyors. Mm-hmm. We have five miles worth of conveyors in our two plants. Um, but that redundancy and, and the quality of our plant design, uh, the automation, uh, we now run those plants and fill the silos, uh, fill the trucks in the silos from here in Austin hmm. remotely. So we're the whoa, only whoa, whoa. ones that do that. We, the last thing I'll mention. Uh, Explain okay. that, though. You, you, yeah. You've got essentially this equipment that's sitting in the middle of the Permian Basin and you're operating it essentially remotely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we've got guys, it, it, it looks like a NASA, a war room, and they're sitting in there with remote controls controlling the loading of the sand in those trucks from here in Austin. And I think their quality of life is a little better here in Austin. <laughs> Didn't I read too where you guys tested this in Washington State as well? Not us. No, okay. Yeah, not us. Okay. And the, so... That's the plant itself, and then there's a fair bit of buzz about what you're doing with Dune, what, what's called Dune Express. Yeah, and can I mention one more thing about the plant? Of course. One of the serendipitous attributes of these giant open dunes is, is they're like a sponge for water. 
It's like it's a huge aquifer. When we dug down four to five feet, there was water. So at first we were like, oh no, you know that's going to complicate our mining process. It turns out it's a huge blessing because now we're dredge mining, and and with dredge mining it's just much more efficient. It's electrified, so you don't have all this heavy iron, all this yellow iron out there. You don't have all the labor. You've got basically like a sucker fish, you know, sucking mm. the sand out. Much more efficient uh, because it's electrified, much less emissions, less labor. So it's a real cost advantage that we have uniquely, and it's better for the environment. So, so Dan, to answer your question, uh, I think we're also, uh, again, unusual given our ENP background, whether we were in the Bakken drilling and completing wells there or in the southern Delaware, whether it's oil, gas, water, or now sand, we know trucks are the worst way to move product around. So from day one, we were thinking, how do we get these trucks off the road? This is terrible. And particularly for me growing up out there, it's like it's number one in traffic fatalities per capita. It is just unacceptable. So we started, and we're probably the only ones at least that were seriously thinking about it, evaluating what are better ways to move uh, this mission critical element to the wells in the Permian. And, and that's where we came up with the Dune Express. And we looked at rail, we looked at slurry, um, but Dune Express, uh, the, the conveyor, was the best way to go. And it's a reason you find conveyors all over the world. And they've been all, the, all over the world since the 1970s. Very reliable, very efficient technology. Mm -hmm. and, and to put it in context, I think Dune Express is 42 miles. That's so right. you're going to take, you're going to take sand from your mines. That's unbelievable. 42 miles to, to basically, it'll what, be loaded for a last mile move to a well site? Yeah, it, could, it will have a, we'll have a state, it's 42 miles long, as you said, and we'll have a state line loadout that's about halfway, that it's a permanent loadout. So it, an off-take point. An off-take point. And then we'll have another off-take point with storage at the end of the line. But also, operators, we, we've got it set up where they can come and we can set them up anywhere along the line and take sand off anywhere along the line. So basically, it extends 42 our miles. mine 42 miles Golly. to the west. The important thing is, once the Dune Express is running, it will take thousands of trucks off the road. Right. It will save lives. It will reduce emissions. And it, it reduces the cost and drives up the efficiency of getting the sand to the wellhead. Reduces the cost by how much, bud? 5% or? Well, basically, um, for us to send the sand down uh, from the mine to the end is about $2 a ton. Okay. And then it's about 8 to $10 a ton to truck it. And I'll talk a little bit about our high-capacity trucking and ultimately autonomous trucking. But to tr truck it, say, 10 miles from there to the wellhead um, is, is um, 8 to $10. So 10 to $12 a ton to truck it on the commercial roads and compete with you know, the, the community right. is, is, um, is uh, $25 a ton. So, so we're putting in $15 a ton of margin that, we're, that we capture there. The safety aspect of it is incredible. Huge. Yeah. 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 That's amazing. Yeah. What but, else do you want to tell us about? Well, the high-capacity trucking. So one of the unusual things about West Texas, it's a problem, but it's also an opportunity, is there are not many commercial roads particularly the Delaware Basin, you go out there, there are huge areas that, that, that all you have are lease roads. And when you look at um, 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 the challenge of that it, and the opportunity is, 
we can use high capacity trucking in those areas. So that we, call them a, we call them heat zones. So we're doing double and triple trailering in those heat zones. So one tractor with two or three trailers to really drive up efficiency. So we're already running this um, in those heat zones and we're, we're putting a drop depots in a second heat zone where we'll do conventional truck to the drop depot and then deliver to the wellhead. But it, again, it just drives up the efficiencies and drives up down the emissions. Now, we also have a deal with robotics who's been doing autonomous trucking for the Department of Defense for 20 years in the Middle East. And if, you, if you've been out there, it looks a little bit like the Middle East out there. So they're very um, experienced with autonomous trucking and, and, and it's really remarkable technology. And it's a perfect situation for it because you don't have communities. You know, it, it's, it's a, a great place to, to move with autonomous trucking. So, so over time we will be we'll stepping in with autonomous trucking. First we're following another truck, but eventually it'll be fully On autonomous. Own. So, but you've talked a lot about what you're working on. What else do you see? What disruptors do you see coming down the, the pike, if you will, in the oil patch? Well, first I'll, I'll address the oil field service in the Permian specifically, sure. and then I'll talk about EMP. I think Atlas is in a, I mean, really, when you look at the evolution of the oil field, as I mentioned, we've gone from very chaotic moving equipment here, there, and everywhere to now we've got really, it's a big factory on the ground. It's, it's very different. And so now there's a real premium on scale, on infrastructure, on, on automation and robotics. Um, and so that's the reason you've seen larger operators with larger balance sheets move out to the Permian. They can really leverage that scale, drive down their per unit costs and get a lot of efficiencies from it. Similarly, Atlas is uniquely positioned. We control the majority of the two giant open dunes. We have the Gawar of sand reserves of this mission critical element that's necessary for every single well in the Permian. So we are the right company to build out these delivery systems that are gonna take the Permian to the next level mm. and make it a more efficient and better factory on the ground, a better place to live and work by getting the trucks off the road. So we're real excited about the opportunity we have to build out the Dune Express and, and, and more. You, know, you, you mentioned a better place to live and work. You're from out there. Mm -hmm. Do you feel a sense of responsibility in that sense? Yeah, I mean, I feel a sense of opportunity and responsibility because every time you hear about an accident out there, it just breaks your heart. It's just, it's just tragic. And so I'm really excited about it. I mean, it really um, energizes you. I'm really um, excited about the opportunity we have to, to, to make it a much better place to live yeah. out there. You know, we, we hear a lot about West Texas and, and the, the amount of people that need to be out there to to make you know to to make the oil and gas environment sustainable right and it's not just the schools and the roads like so i hear ideas like this and moms want schools that are safe and the, they want roads that are safe for people to come back to every single day so i'm listening to this and it's it is encouraging to know that there's actual tangible things being done that are going to be that are, that are being done now. Yeah. yeah. And we're not the only one. There are a lot of, sure. uh, uh, I mean, our industry, a lot of good people trying to do better. There's a, that coalition, Don Evans, they're, they're exactly. doing a lot of really good work. So we're just glad to be doing what we can. That's great, yeah. What about other technology? You see anything going to be a game changer like horizontal drilling and fracking? Yeah, on the EMP side, you know, as I said before, these black swans like we had this wonderful constructive black swan of horizontal drilling and fracking, there's no way we could see that coming. 
I mean, maybe George Mitchell saw it, you know. And mm. He was so persistent about it that he, he, he delivered it. But I don't think anybody saw that coming. It, I, I don't think there's any way I can see the next big step. But I do think there's real opportunity um, when you look at our recovery factors. We're recovering about 10% of the oil in the ground. For shale. Yeah, for shale. I mean, but th- that's, there's a huge amount of oil in the ground. We do not have an issue with, with how much oil is available. We've got tremendous amounts of oil in the rock. It's about the process of getting it how out. How do we get it out? How do we get it out? And that's about, t- well, it's about two things. It's how do we get it out. It's the technology. And then it's government. It's, it's access to the rock. Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, you probably know this. Let's see if you agree. Why do you think the shell revolution happened in the United States? What's the most important reason? I'm going to say property rights and the yes, ability to exactly. own, for the individuals to own the, own the resource. Own, own the minerals. Uh-huh. We're the only country where the people own the minerals. So I've explored France. We've looked at Argentina. We've looked at Australia. There are, are, are shell resources around the world. But when I think back to when we were exploring in France and I went to visit those people are so disenfranchised mm. from that economic value. It's like, we don't want those trucks running around yeah. here. So thank God our founding fathers vested that economic liberty with the people. We have this economic liquid market of, of, yeah. of individuals pursuing their rational self-interest and generally very responsibly, and it's a blessing for our country. Mm-hmm. So to me, the two big uh, factors that will determine ultimately the price of oil are are one technology, and we're going to continue to advance incrementally, and maybe there'll be another uh, black swan. Um, but two, access the government uh, restricting or, or not restricting or not yeah. restricting. Yeah. Do you see? Of but, course, Dan got that right. By the way, yeah, he nailed it. <laughs> I was I was going to make some joke about ten percent recovery factors, and I was going to check math to see if we had another ninety percent to go. Um, so, Bud, we're there's a lot of talk in the business about maturing shale maturing and inventory issues and things like that. Do you think that, do you think that shale's plateauing at this point? Well, I mean, we are fortunate and we're unusual in that given our Brigham exploration experience, we explored most of the basins domestically over the years. And, and, um, we, we, you know, we added 8 million barrels a day with the shale. I mean, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. And, um, but when you look at the basins, the Bakken and, and, and the Eagleford and those other, they are more mature uh, than the Permian. And the Permian has more tier one rock left um, and it has more oil in place. It's special. It has great mm. sand right in the middle of it. I mean, it's just got a lot going for it. So yeah, we are seeing a, a maturing, um, you know, less tier one rock in a lot of the plays. Um, and um, so I think, you know, I think it's going to be, we can add a couple million barrels. Uh, it's hard for me to see outside of a, another significant breakthrough and that domestically we'll be able to add another six or eight million okay. barrels. Yeah. So you think if we're at 13 today, 13 million barrels today, U.S. production, we might make it to 15, but we're not going to 20. With high oil prices and with a, a more constructive political, cultural you know, support. We could, that could be a long, <laughs> could be a long, long rabbit hole uh, <laughs> of, of yeah. discussion. Yeah. That's yeah. Different, different, does, different podcast. It does have an effect, though. I can, I can tell you, as a, uh, having been a, an executive in a public company, 
you know, if, you, if, if, if they're not, you know, positive, if you feel like, what's coming next? What's, how are they coming after me next? It makes you more reluctant to step out and invest mm-hmm. a lot of capital. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, what about, what about the, the demand side of things? Do you, do you subscribe to a, a near-term peak demand type of scenario? Do you think we're not going to need hydrocarbons in, you know, the near term? Uh, this is like the biggest softball of all time, Josh. Thank I'm, you. I'm serving it up, but but it's about to hit, hit, hit one over the bleachers. <laughs> no, I mean that is pretty easy to answer. No, um, you can't replace oil and natural gas. Um, there are other energy options out there, but they're um, they're different. Every energy option has strengths and weaknesses. Um, oil is reliable it's not intermittent um, it's more portable the energy density is remarkable it's not going away um, you've got several billion people who want mm-hmm. a higher standard of living um, it's just it's just wrong to even think you're going to deny them of that right. so I, my view is as the, de- the developing world continues to to uh, to grow and the population's growing that, that um, the demand for oil and gas is only going to increase. Mm-hmm. And so that's somewhat of a segue, uh, an inelegant seg- segue for, for, for uh, me to ask about energy transition. And so you've seen a lot of booms and busts in 40 years. And I guess the question is, do you see energy transition or decarbonization? Is it a fad? Is it going to go away? Is it... How, just talk to us about how you view that from a, the lens of what you've seen over your career. What I see is not an energy transition. I see an emissions transition. Okay. Like we've been in an emissions transition for 50 years now that in the United States, our air, air uh, pollution emissions are down 78%. So our industry, continue, we produce energy more cleanly and efficiently than any other country in the world. So we've been on an energy emissions transition for some time. You know, I was, I was in a, a group uh, with folks, including some uh, climate catastrophist scientists and, and uh, solar and wind, and, and they kind of came to the conclusion, hey, you know, really this isn't an energy transition. This is an emission transition. That's what we're after. We're after reducing emissions. And, and they said, you know, instead of pitting one source against another, let's focus on what we're trying to accomplish. And they, and they had a vote, and they voted it down. Dan, we've done a lot of interviews. That's the first time I've heard that phrase. Emissions transition. Have you heard that before? I haven't, really. Yeah. I mean, but it, it makes I would makes love sense. to see y'all to encourage that. Well, okay. I mean, when you say it, I, I appreciate the explanation, but that yeah. is the first time I've heard that on this podcast or really anywhere, yeah. actually. Yeah. yeah. Say it two or three times fast. I was trying to say emissions transition, and, <laughs> and it's, it's a little bit of a tongue twister. <laughs> emissions but transition. Yeah. Well, can I say one more thing on that? So when I started my first company, Brigham Exploration, I, I knew that our core responsibility was to our shareholders. That's, that's who we work for. But I knew to achieve profits over the long haul, to create value for the shareholders, we had to take good care of our employees. We got to take good care of our communities and the environment that we operate in. Because we've done that, with, and, and, and we just focus on our fiduciary responsibility to our shareholders, but it flows back to our investors. But not only that, all of our legitimate stakeholders win. I would put any of our company's track record, particularly Atlas Energy Solutions, 
on the impact on the society, and we've been talking about it, on the environment up against any competitor. Nobody is doing a better job on that, and it's because we are focused on the right thing. We're not focused on the political coercion yeah. and these movements. We are focused on doing the right thing for the shareholders. Mm -hmm. Well, I can tell you right now, we've been on this podcast for, I don't know, what, 30, 40 minutes. So you've mentioned people. You've mentioned team. You've mentioned trusting people. You have mentioned uh, great people. You've mentioned, um, you know, your community. <laughs> so just naturally, I don't feel like you're building any kind of uh, – um, you know, I don't feel like you have an agenda on this. I feel like this is naturally fl yeah. flowing from you, quite honestly. So yeah. to hear you say this, it, it feels like this is exactly who you are mm -hmm. from 1990 to now. Yeah, and it's not just me, though. It, it's all, all the people that we work with. I can tell you our, our VP ops that moved up to Williston in the Bakken, he could have been mayor. Yeah. Uh, involved in the schools. Our people in, in West Texas at Atlas are involved in the schools. I mean, it's a virtuous, uh, sustainable yeah. uh, relationship great. that we yeah, have. Yeah, and, and Bud, you're... So some of the things you're talking about are often mentioned in the discussion of ESG. And so I know you've got some pretty passionate views about ESG. So why don't you, why don't you talk about that a little bit? Well, my view is it's like church and state that politics and business don't mix. And when you talk about ESG, when you talk about climate change, DEI, those are political terms. And they're not in our boardroom. They're not in our presentations. They're not in our uh, filings, except when the lawyers slip them in and the risk factors. But, <laughs> but, um, Damn those lawyers. Yeah, but uh, uh, you can look it up. We focus on the specifics, what we do for the environment mm -hmm. and for the people. And it's because we're creating value for our right. shareholders. This is what we do. Yeah, this is what we do. So the problem with the ESG and is there are a lot of um, political and cultural agendas. Um, and there's some bad actors out yeah. there. And, and my view is that managers need to be more disciplined. They need to be more, um, um, we need more corporate integrity. We need, I'm, 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 we're trying to set an example and I'd like to encourage other executives to, to stay intently focused on creating value for their shareholders for excellence and, and not, not, be, right. not be affected by the political movements. I, I think that, uh I think that's taking hold more now than it was 18 months ago. Yeah. Good. Good. That's my sense as well, so it's good yeah. to hear yeah. that. But you're, you're, you built seven companies. Um, talk, to, talk to the entrepreneurs that listen to this podcast. What's, what advice would you give them so that they can build seven companies and sell them for billions of dollars? <laughs> Yeah, let's go back to those numbers yeah. again. Those are fun numbers yeah. to talk about. Well, I'm very fortunate. I've worked with great people. I have a great wife. It wouldn't have happened without her. And I work with great people. I had a great mentor. Really, it's a, it starts with people. <laughs> yeah, that's you awesome. Know, it gets back to that. It starts with you know the people you surround you with. What's your wife's name? Ann. Ann. That's yeah. fantastic. Keep and, going. Uh, yeah. yeah, it wouldn't have happened without her. And and um, Even if she is a lawyer, I think it, you said. She's she's one of the good ones. Yes, <laughs> yes. So there are a lot of entrepreneurs' advice: good people, good people, um, and then um, aligning the people with the shareholders. I think um, I, we have found we tend to be pretty aggressive on a relative basis with equity uh -huh. to align people with the shareholders, and then and then empowering them. And this is important: trusting them. 
and, th and that's part of empowering them, trusting them to innovate and take risks and yep. take smart, smart risks. That is, the, it, that is the second time he said that exact yeah. phrase in this, in this yeah. interview. Yeah. But if, if, if you're in a situation where you find mm. that you don't trust the people on your team, do you fire them? Yeah, you, you got to part ways. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's, that's hard to do, yeah. right? But, but it's not good for them. It's not good for you. Right. And it, most importantly, it's not good for the shareholders. Yeah. And what about pitfalls? What's the, what mistake would you avoid if you had a chance? Well, I, I had a hard lesson on debt. You know, oh, yeah, yeah. Be very careful with debt. It almost took us out. And um, a lot of people didn't think we'd make, make it, but it, it, it became a, um, a real um, defining moment in that we, we came through it and we grew and we learned from it. Mm -hmm. so, so be very careful with banking. Well, it, it can be wonderful on the way up. Not to get in too much in that if you don't want to, but I mean, it was at a... Is that just a debt, or is it also debt plus timing? Are we talking debt plus timing? Yeah. yeah. Okay. We would have been because I know that businesses do this, and you're right. If you hit the timing with a lot of debt, it's even we, worse. We had a secondary on the. We were hitting the road for a secondary when the Saudis announced they were going to grow market share. We would have done a secondary and been fine. So you're talking we, like 2017 time? Yeah. Break? This was, no. This is in two, in 1998. Oh. Okay. Yeah, yeah. When oil went to eleven dollars a barrel after that, we were doing a secondary with our underwriters and. And uh, it was a matter of days that we just missed the window. Oh, got it. Bud, last, last question from me before the lightning round is you're doing a lot, right? Elon Musk has more companies than you, but not that many more. you got a lot going on. How do you prioritize the things that you're doing, the things you care about, family, philanthropy, all that stuff? How do you prioritize all of it? Well, I, th I think about it a lot, and I think, I, I think I, about it in terms of I have two things. I have my time, and I have my treasure, and, you know, that's what I have to work with. That's my currency, so I'm weighing that all the time. What I mean, right deal. now. I love it. Keep going. Yeah. I'm not cutting well, you off. I'm just you. fired up about it. Well, I'm, I'm CEO of Atlas Energy Solutions, a terrific company that's got this opportunity to make a huge difference, so, so that's getting a lot of my time right now. Right. Mm -hmm. But I am involved in some philanthropies and um, trying to raise the energy IQ because I think it's very low right now uh, <laughs> doing things like that. Yeah. Bud, what a stud. Oh, we, we, Dude, I love we, it. We, Time we, and treasure. I mean, we, I'm not kidding. That is exactly – I've never heard it said like that either. Yeah, That's exactly how people should measure it. Thank you. Well, we appreciate you sharing time with us. And any, anything else we should talk about before we do our infamous lightning round? No, I can't think of it. Yeah. It's been good. That was, that was really good. Yeah. Awesome. Um, Thank you. So the, the rules of engagement, Josh, why don't you talk about the rules of engagement on the lightning well, round? Well, I always screw them up, so don't worry about it. I mean, Dan has, uh, Dan will look at you with judgment if you mess the, them out, but it's one-word answers. Um, we're going to throw them at you, and there's really only one question that has a correct answer. And, and you'll, that's, that's you, the last one. You'll, you'll know exactly which that's one right. it is. That's right. So good luck. Okay, thank you. And Dan, you have to answer all these because I've given away my phone, which okay. has my all right. I'm gonna I'm, I get to there. I get to ask all of them. So, but Franklin's barbecue or Luling's barbecue? <laughs> Salt Lick. Salt I, Lick. Okay, I, I, that's I, fair. Okay, I've that's had Franklin's. It's delicious. I have not had Luling's, so okay. I can't pick. So. Wyoming or Montana? Montana, clearly. Will the world make net zero by 2050? Uh, absolutely not. No. Wind or solar? <laughs> Boycott. Boy, no okay. Um, 
Permian High School football, which is where I think you went to high school. Midland High. Okay, so Midland High football or UT football. UT. Okay. It's September 21st. The S&P 500 for the rest of the year. Are you bullish or bearish? Bearish. Cash or crypto? Oh, I mean. Cash. (laughs) I've got to learn more. Maybe you guys can educate me. No, I I mean, that's the biggest layup of the whole deal right there. (laughs) Something I've been grappling with people about. Does $100 a barrel WTI oil hurt demand in the short or intermediate term? Yes or no? No. Okay. Barbie or Oppenheimer? Oppenheimer. Yellowstone or 1883? Yellowstone. Do you think, and we've had to change this question because for most of the year we were asking would Ukraine situation resolve in in 2023? I've moved it out to June of 2024. Will we resolve the Ukraine conflict by June of 2024? Yes. Oh. Sure hope so. Yeah, no kidding. Work from the office or work from home? Office, absolutely. Do you think we'll have another IRA-type bill in the next three years? I sure hope not. No. Will we see Henry Hub natural gas average price higher than five bucks, an average annual price? Will we see any year that averages five bucks between now and 2030? Yes. And no pressure. Will the Houston Texans make the Super Bowl in the next decade? No. Sorry. <laughs> Everything was going so well until then, I'm bud. I'm sorry. I'm um, in Austin. Oh, yeah, well, no, yeah. that, that, Congratulations that is, on that your, is okay. your UT season so right far. now. It's yeah, fun. I'll yeah. see. Thank um, you. Energy entrepreneur and CEO of Atlas Energy yes. Solutions, Bud Brigham, we thank you so much yes. for your time with bud, us. Bud, truly. Really what a appreciated pleasure. it. Thank you all for that having me. That was great. Me. Really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Yeah, Good luck thank to you. you. Thank you. And Ann, by the way. Thank you.